Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode seven of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in arms on this journey, Raj Jasodia. Hi, Raj. Hi. Hi, Timothy. Good to see you again. Good to see you again. And uh, last week, we sort of did an introduction to conscious culture, and we used one of your famous acronyms, tactile, to do that. And um, I thought today we would maybe go a little deeper into some aspects about why culture matters and uh, maybe talk a little bit about uh, how it matters particularly now in the time of, of coronavirus and working from home. And uh, if we have time, maybe a, a little bit about uh, culture change. Um, so, you know, I think that there's sort of maybe two aspects of, of why culture matters. The first is, you know, sort of making the business case for it. And uh, maybe I'll start with that and we can talk about that a little bit. And then I think it would be great to go into the and the people focus, the humanity part of it, and talk a little bit about healing organizations. Yeah. Sound good? Yeah. All right. Well, you know, the, the business case at one level is, um, has been made, and I'll just hear a, a couple of statistics throwing out there. You know, really, when you look at the great places to work, over the last 20 years, those companies that are publicly traded companies and are uh, tracked against the, the Russell 2000, um, they have three times higher return uh, than those that are their peers. So the first thing is, you know, having a great culture clearly has been demonstrated to have good financial returns. And at another level, you know, those same companies have half the turnover rate. Uh, versus their industry peers. And that has a twofold effect. I think one is on the cost side, just, uh, you know, you have less churn, you're less training, hiring, other costs, but also on the experience side of keeping that experience and keeping uh, that knowledge inside the firm is, is really important. So um, those are two statistics that I like to throw out. What about yourself? When you think about the business case, what do you think about? Yeah, so... Uh there's the great places to work. Of course, there's the employee engagement, which is <clears throat> strongly connected uh, to that and all the data that uh, Gallup has around that in terms of performance implications. And there's also the, uh, the classic study that was done on this by uh, Carter and Heskett uh, in a book called Corporate Culture and Performance mm. that came out some years ago. And, uh, and they uh, divided cultures into two categories. So one was constructive and adaptive cultures. So we sort of had the positive energy and then they evolved over time. And then you have the aggressive and sort of rigid cultures, right? Because every company has a culture, whether you pay attention to it or not. And, and by default, you know, many cultures ended up in that category, but they, they looked at the performance of companies over time based upon which of these two cultures best uh, described them. Uh, I think over a 15 year period, they found revenue growth was, uh, about four times higher, 682% versus 166%. Uh, 
the stock price appreciation was 900% versus 74%. So that's about 14 times higher, 12 or 14 times higher. And the net income growth was even more dramatic, 756% versus just 1%. So the, the performance implications of this are very clear. And at some level, that should not be a surprise uh, to any of us, because ultimately every business runs on human energy. Right? And that's the caring and creative energy, not the physical energy. Yeah. And I think that's really the secret. I love that, Raj. Um, when I'm sometimes giving talks about conscious culture, I say, listen, in the end, it's, it's, it's not as complicated as it sometimes sounds. It's really about caring. You know, are you working in a place where you feel people care about you and you care about the people you work with. So, you know, if, if you don't feel like uh, the people care about you, it's, you're not going to be at your best. And, and that's just a human trait. And then the second one I talk about is, is meaning, you know, is my work meaningful? Does it, do I feel mm -hmm. like, you know, it matters. My work matters in some way. Um, yeah. And then the third is, do I feel like I'm having an impact? And if I'm making a difference in some, you know, I don't want to be going in and counting pins on the left and moving them to the right and saying, you know, great, I, I moved the pins from left to right, but I, I didn't really feel like I did anything that was either meaningful or impactful. So those to me are sort of very core human things. And to your point about bringing out the best of people <laughs> and, uh, and organizations that do that. I think that uh, you and I were talking earlier and, and you mentioned Microsoft as a, as a really interesting example. Maybe you want to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, so I've been looking at Microsoft uh, as a company. Of course, all of us have kind of grown up with Microsoft as being part of the, uh, the atmosphere that we've, uh, we lived in, right? I mean, they... Bill Gates had a clear sense of purpose, which was essentially to democratize computing, to put a computer on every desk, to make this ubiquitous. And it's one of those uh, rare situations where, in a way, he did achieve his purpose. Mm. So in the 14 years that he was CEO, he stayed on as chairman after that for a while, but in 14 years that he was CEO, the company had an enormous impact uh, in the world, uh, grew tremendously, became dominant, almost a monopoly, as we know, on the desktop with operating systems and uh, application software like uh, Microsoft Office. So his, his track record was uh, tremendous in terms of achieving purpose, as well as financial value, right? They went from zero to 250 billion in market cap, which in those years was a lot. I mean, nowadays, the companies are much larger, you know, but they were close to being the most it's, valuable. It's still a big number. You couldn't count that high in a lifetime, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it used to be General Electric from the sort of old world economy and then Microsoft from the new world economy <clears throat> that, were, that were at the top of those lists. So again, if you look at the culture side of that, you know, it's always a reflection of the leader. Mm. The CEO's persona, in a way, becomes a persona of the company, especially if it's a founder as was the case. And Bill Gates had a strong personality, but was very much focused on excellence and focused on, uh, on results, right? And of course, uh, on coding itself. And so it was a harsh culture in a way, right? He would say things like, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And he'd yell at people you know, in, in, in front of others, embarrass them at meetings and so forth. But, but his persona became the ideal persona. Like, can you be like Bill if you want to succeed at Microsoft? Mm. Uh, but it wasn't an, a nurturing, caring place by any means. Right? It was not a, you know, you didn't have sort of a holistic, sort of whole, whole human being mm. uh, 
uh, you know, capacity to show up in that way. And then he stepped down and uh, his deputy, Steve Balmer, became the CEO. Now, Balmer inherited a company where the purpose had become kind of irrelevant because the purpose had been achieved. And he didn't have the vision to say, okay, what's our renewed purpose now? Where do we go from here? Uh, it became for him back to the default of profit maximization. Mm. Right? So it was all about the numbers. In the 14 years that he ran the company, it was all about the numbers. I actually met people who reported directly to him, two different divisions of Microsoft. And uh, there was tremendous fear, you know, about, you know, bringing things up to Steve. And all he said, you know, bring me the numbers from your division, right? mm. which is a profit center. If they said, we want to cooperate with the other division to do some interesting things, said, you know, shut up and just give me the numbers. Okay, so people literally were discouraged or prohibited from, uh, from collaborating within the company. There's a classic uh, cartoon, you can probably find it if you Google the organizational chart at Microsoft <laughs> was depicted as a series of silos with guns pointing at each other. Well, right, so I, this I love that image because, you know, it, it's fascinating when you bring up the word fear and, you know, there's lots of, uh, you know, human performance studies that are now out that demonstrate very clearly that, um, you know, fear literally narrows your view. Um, yeah. The way we are biologically wired, you have a fear reflex. When the fear comes in, you narrow, your brain narrows down. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and you, you become incapable of creative thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the, the innovation, the creation of new things, even the openness of having open dialogue about issues that are on the table. So yeah, it's innovation, but it's even about the openness that a team feels. If yes. there's a sense of fear in the room, people are not gonna go and feel comfortable having that dialogue. Um, and they won't be able to bring their best selves to, to addressing some of the tough issues or difficult issues. Because their range of emotional responsivity is, is highly narrowed. And then to mm -hmm. your point, we're not at our most creative when somebody's holding a gun to our head. <laughs> you know? uh, and, and that can only take you so far. I mean, you can make somebody yeah. run pretty fast yeah. right, out of fear for a short amount of time, and then they will collapse and die. And so that was the culture. And if you look at over 14 years, Microsoft became sort of irrelevant. Mm. They missed the mobile revolution. They missed the cloud revolution, right? They were just... You know, yeah. still selling you boxes with windows and all those things. And, you know, the, the world was moving on. So st there was no good strategy. There was no sense of purpose. And the culture was terrible. Mm. Right? And you look in over 14 years, the market cap only went from 250 to about 300 billion. <clears throat> so 50 billion added, or 3 billion a year, roughly. Then comes Satya Nadella, right? And he comes in and... Uh, right away focuses on two things. One is a renewed sense of purpose. Mm. You know, so we need to figure out why we are still relevant. Why does the world still, still need Microsoft, right? Yeah. Uh, and that came partly through uh, recognition of some of the, uh, uh, the changes that had happened in the world, right? The world was going mobile, the world was going cloud, etc. So those were big, huge opportunities that Microsoft had missed out on. In fact, Bomber had bought uh, Nokia Mm. I think uh, a desperate bit to save Windows Phone, that business. And within the first year, Nadella had to write off that entire yeah. investment of $14 billion or so. Right? So came up with a renewed strategy around cloud, around mobile, uh, came up with a new sense of purpose around listening to customers. And, and the whole thing, the, the inner culture was rooted in empathy. Mm. Empathy became the guiding value. 
Yeah. And Nadella himself embodied that uh, because, you know, he has a special needs son and he shared that with his leadership team on the first out retreat that they had and, and encouraged others to share their, uh, you know, their humanity as well with each other. And that value of empathy was new to Microsoft. Yeah. This was not a touchy-feely culture by any means. Mm. But that has become their strongest source of strength now. Right? So again, they've got all the cylinders firing, right? So again, with conscious capitalism, these, these pillars are all important and they all reinforce each other and they're synergistic with each other. So two plus two equals you know, much more than four when you put purpose and culture and a strong strategy and all the rest of it, uh, a stakeholder mindset together. And you see that reflected in the performance. So Microsoft seemingly out of nowhere is almost tied with Apple to be the world's most valuable company. In fact, they were, and Apple suddenly shot, shot up recently, but I think the last time I looked, they're about 1.6 trillion wow. in market cap. And uh, so he's created over six years, about mm-hmm. 1.3 trillion in additional market value. Yeah, pretty amazing. Which is almost unheard of, like, you know, yeah. he's doing 200 plus billion a year. So again, the financial performance has been extraordinary, but it has become an exciting, meaningful place to work. Yeah. for people and the innovations and, uh, you know, the new technologies just keep flowing out of there. Well, I like that point about the innovation. I mean, again, we can go back to the quote-unquote the business case, so to speak, and, and you know, Microsoft uh, demonstrates that in terms of market cap. And increasingly, you know, there is a lot of talk about companies needing to be more agile, be more adaptive, innovation. And I remember Sir Ken Robinson who unfortunately passed away two weeks yeah. ago. Yeah, um, Sir Ken uh, was the first MC at our first CEO yeah. summit when we, and we, we began all of this. And he was just became a dear friend after that and um, was uh, you know always talking about creativity and innovation. And he'd go around the world, he'd give these wonderful, innovative workshops for a day and he'd leave and it'd be like, well, nothing happened. We had an innovation workshop, check the box. Mm-hmm. So I want to put innovation in the context of, you know, people often come to me and they sort of say, so what's going to happen to, um, to jobs and cultures as we get more robotics and more AI? And, and my response is the more human businesses are going to win. So as much as we start to worry about this, what appears to be these non-human elements, the cultures yeah. that are actually more human are yeah. probably going to be more able to adapt to these changes. Uh, you just think about the levels of trust and engagement when you're trying to find out new ways of working that take advantage of robotics and AI. The companies with very low levels of trust and engagement, people are going to be very fearful. They're not going to be willing to sort of be innovative and find new ways of working with these technologies to the advantage of the business. So Weirdly enough, as people start worrying about the human impact of some of these technologies, it's, it's, it's really the human cultures and the leaders who build those kinds of, of people-focused cultures who are probably going to have uh, an advantage um, in this kind of space. And there's a, um, uh, a report that came out last year about the agile mindset. Now, it was published by a group called Walk. Uh, the talk led by a a woman who's been in the culture field for a long time, Carolyn Taylor, and uh, the leader of their UK business, Amanda Fajek. And I loved it because it really sort of started to talk about the difference between agile ways of being versus agile as a process. 
and it being part of a mindset and being part of a culture that you start to develop. And what I liked about it was that, you know, in essence, you start thinking about a layer cake. At one level, you've got tactile, the core conscious culture. And then you lay over that another set of cultural practices, um, only four of them, but around customer centricity. And I don't just mean, you know, customers are important, but, you know, customers as raving fans, you know, like how do we co-create with our customers? How do we understand the day in the life of our customers? <laughs> deep, deep customer centricity. The second was around self-direction. The idea that people in those kind of businesses uh, have to be very com comfortable with the idea of self-direction. Because mm -hmm. we can talk about independence and empowering, but if people aren't comfortable with self-direction, that's not going to work. And then they had two others. One was um, uh, a culture of experimentation where mm -hmm. people were constantly trying to do rapid prototyping and failing was okay. Um, and then the final was building collaborative networks that integrate across the organization and encouraging that. You know, I'm always reminded of uh, when Zappos built their new headquarters in Las Vegas. Um, Tony Shea designed it so there'd only be one entrance. There were a lot of exits, because they had a lot of exits for fire code reasons, but there was one entrance into this massive hall where they had a lounge and they have a cafeteria. And the idea was to create more collisions. So everybody came in, they would be forced to sort of, in some sense, interact with one another. And, mm -hmm. and that becomes sort of the core of being able to create these collaborative networks. So if in a sense, you could have this first layer of, we have that trust and engagement that we're looking for in a tactile organization. And then you overlay it with these four, you start to be building on a complete set of what it takes to really be agile and innovative. And then the, the last layer is probably one of having a, what I call freedom within a framework. You, you create an operating system within the business that mm -hmm. says this is how we start to run the business a little differently. So that includes things like, you know, well, how do we share power? How do we plan and set priorities? Um, how do we do divide the work up? Like, like what does the top team, what can only the top team do? And then you keep, you know, cascading that down to what's the thing that only the next level can make decisions on and cascade that down and, and how they share data, how open they are, how transparent they are and um, how the top team invests its time. You put those things together and you start to have what I call an operating system. This is how we run the business. So at the top, you have how we run the business, sort of freedom within a framework. Here's the framework. Everybody understands it. We give you freedom within that. And then that focus at the next level on those four bits of customer centricity, yeah. the um, uh, experimentation, self-direction, and collaborative networks. And then all of that rests on, mm -hmm. on trust and engagement. Now, when you do that and you put that together, you now are creating a very conscious, agile, adaptive, innovative culture. And, um, and, and you know, that's what the future is going to look like. And if you're not moving in that direction, then your ability to compete in markets uh, is going to be hampered. And I think Microsoft is a great example of, of how they've started to put all those layers together yeah. um, in a way that, uh, that helps them be much more innovative and be challenging Amazon in the cloud computing world. <laughs>
Yeah, out of, out of nowhere. I mean, they went from zero to 50, you know, within a matter of a few years. And I think that the links that you just made are very important because we, are, we talk in the book about conscious culture and management, right? So the management approaches that we use have to be linked to the culture we have. And this idea of freedom within a framework, I love that too. You know, Dove Seedman has talked about that idea in his book, How, which is a lot about culture, right? But uh, companies that have a greater amount of freedom inside uh, do outperform because yep. people that can then uh, show up and be creative and innovative and, uh, and, and create new things. But we talk about freedom from and freedom to. Right. So freedom from unnecessary rules and bureaucracy and all of that. Yeah. And then freedom to create. Yeah. Right? But it has to be, there have to be some guardrails in there. And I think that's one of the interesting dances that we have to do with values and things like that. Mm. Uh, if we go too far on one extreme, we say we care in freedom, you yeah. know, then we, we move towards anarchy potentially, yeah. right? And there's no cohesiveness. Yeah. But then we go the other side and it's all structured and then there's a stifling. So there's always a pair, you know, of values that go together. So it has to be freedom with a framework. Right? Yeah, with some kind of structure. And I think people, you know, struggle with what does that mean? That's why I call it an operating system. It, it really becomes what is your management system for how yeah. you run the business? And that's why there are ways of defining it in terms of like, where does the power sit? Where do decisions get made? How do we plan and set priorities? What meetings do we have? What teams have what decision rights? Um, what are the things that, you, that are not negotiable and what are the things that are? Um, and getting everybody aligned around, you know, we have a purpose and we have a strategy and you need to be aligned around these things. Now within that, you have freedom. Um, and, and, and I think that, that it's, it's that layering effect that then makes a complete set when you're trying to say, how do I, how do I think about this? How do, I, how do I move in this direction? Well, you know, one of the other uh, things that I've been thinking about recently in this regard, you know, we talk a lot about values, obviously. Values are at the core of culture. Mm. And we talk about tactile and all those kinds of ideas. But one of the things I've been recognizing is the power of polarities. Mm. Right? That if you, are, if you identify a value as being a good value, and then these are all very, very good values. Yes. This is what you want to embody. But if you just focus on that value in and of itself, you yeah. might miss the fact that there's a there's sort of a, a related value to that. Yeah. Right? That, uh, that you might be missing. So there's a company called Natura in Brazil. And they went through this exercise some years ago and identified eight of their core values. Yeah. Right. So, for example, being careful and respectful of others yeah. is a core value in their culture. And that sounds great. Like how can you be against that? But there's a polarity there because if you go too far in that direction, then the polarity is being honest and authentic with others. Yeah. Right. So if you're too caring and respectful all the time, that means sometimes you know, you're going to brush things under the carpet that need to be brought out, right? Yeah. So that's the polarity. We want to make sure that while we're being caring and respectful, we are also aware of the need to be honest and authentic with others. I, I love that, Raj. I think that's so important. I'm working with a, a, a very big technology company right now on doing some leadership development. And, and one of the things that we're working with them on is this polarity, the ability to freedom and a framework, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And um, and it's really interesting because when you take that polarity and, and there is for every light, there's a shadow. So you're right. right. As soon as you say there's good, then it implies there's something bad. And that's the wrong approach. It's, right. it's like, how do you find that middle ground? 
And an interesting, um, Barry Johnson's written the first book mm -hmm. on polarities, and, and he does an interesting set of exercises where he says, okay, take one of these values. Um, what are the good things about it? And when it's overused, what are the bad things? And now you, you put the two, you know, here's freedom, here's framework, uh, and you put that, you know, bad things, good things, bad things, good things, and you suddenly have a very good dialogue with the team around how do we find that polarity in the middle so we avoid the bad things and yet at right. the same time can, can accentuate and find the balance with the good things. Right. It's not even so much the middle, I think about it, as how do we get the positives of both poles yeah. and yeah, stay yeah, yeah, away yeah. from the negatives of both poles. That, right? And that's exactly, uh, that, that's a better way of putting it, Raj. That's where you want to go. And, and you describe, you know, what are the strengths of this? What are the, the downsides of it? And then as a team, you have that dialogue of how are we going to get the best from this? And what are the signals we look for when we're going in the wrong direction? <laughs> so that we right. start to have some early signals of like, oh, wait a minute, this yeah. may not be, we may be not finding this right. I think that's a really important point. I think it's increasingly important around, you know, the mindset that leaders need to have. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll come back to that in our next uh, podcast. We get into leadership. But, you know, I'm also interested, Raj, in, you know, we sort of talked about the business case, innovation, all those things. But, you know, you and I have had this conversation before that there's also a human element. I mean, you've written a great book on that, uh, The Healing Organization. And uh, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about, you know, what does that mean for a culture when we start looking at it from the, from the healing organization point of view? Yeah, so a lot of cultures, um, I would say that the, the default with cultures is focused on performance and numbers and accountability and metrics and all of that, right? Efficiency and effectiveness and so forth. Uh, and when you just have that as the focus, we kind of lose sight of the people and what's happening to them. And, and you end up with where we are, which is 15% engagement worldwide. 85% mm -hmm. of people showing up at work and and having a, a pretty bad to terrible experience. And the number that hasn't moved in the last 10 years, I mean, surprisingly. Yeah, it's been, it's been surprisingly. pretty <laughs> um, And so, I mean, that's, that's just sad, right? I mean, that's just a sad, the fact is that Freud, I believe, said uh, love and work are the cornerstones of our humanness. Mm. And for most people, you know, work is something to be survived, whereas it can be the deepest source of meaning and fulfillment for us in our lives. Right? Work is inherently meaningful for human beings. And so there's something not working with the way that we are working. But then as I thought about it, you know, that a business, you know, what is business? Think about it. In a free society, governments don't take care of us. Businesses mm. are given that opportunity to meet our needs, which is when you take care of somebody, that means you meet their needs. Right? Mm. So we have lots of needs in different areas and different businesses spring up in order to satisfy those needs. Now, you can do that with a different energy. Uh, two different energies, right? So one is that you view that as a gap that you're going to fill, right? So I'm going to sort of uh, achieve my goals, right, by using customers and employees and others and basically making money in that way, right? So it goes from I'm wanting to serve you to I'm going to actually use you. I'm going to create some, you know, appetites within you that I'm going to then feed, right? <laughs> so wants, desires, and addictions rather than real needs, yeah. And, you know, marketing is pretty clever at, at, uh, at actually getting people to have those wants, desires, and addictions. But that ultimately ends up causing suffering because we end up using people to achieve our goals. 
as opposed to saying, I'm going to make you whole, I'm going to take care of you and meet your real needs that you have in life. Mm. And, and I'm going to do that as a means of expressing my own persona and being in the world. Right. So I start the business to serve others and to express myself and to really care for others by meeting their needs. And with that energy, right, that's a healing energy. Because yeah. I make you whole. You know, the root of the word healing is, is in holiness and in wholeness. Yeah. So I make you whole when I, when I fulfill those real needs that you have, not wants, desires, and addictions. So this book is an exploration of that idea that business can be thought about as fundamentally about healing because it is about us taking care of each other through this vehicle called business. I view it as a business as a we are here to care for each other and business is a way to scale that. Yeah. We can care for each other at scale. Right. If again, the right energy behind it. I, I love that, Raj. I mean, there's a very popular book called Homo Sapiens, which is out. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think one of the hypotheses they have in that book is that uh, the reason why humans as a species evolved was because we were able to, um, one, create meaning within our group. So we were able to share meaning in a larger circle outside of our family. And that allowed us to build trust with larger groups. So the Neanderthals would still work in their family units of 20 or 30 people. But the Homo sapiens, because we could communicate and create meaning and create caring that went outside of our family circle, were able to create larger groups that they could mobilize. Mm. And therefore, you had 150 people going to the buffalo hunt and not 30. So you got more buffalo. You know, you got into a tribal battle, you had more mobilization. And, and I bring that up because I think it's so important that we sometimes begin to think that organizations exist as these abstract entities out there that are, um, you know, just facts of existence versus organizations are made of people. And we are all human beings. And how do we bring the best of humanity to deal with the problems and issues and challenges we have, we happen to know that businesses are a great way to organize efficiently to do that. But it flips the, the, the text around and says businesses exist for humanity <laughs> rather than that humans exist yeah. are only allowed to exist because they have some usefulness yeah. for a business. <laughs> Um, and I think that that attitude is increasingly, you know, so important in terms of, of how we evolve our thinking about businesses. Um, can you give a couple of examples of some of your favorite companies when you were doing the book? You know, I, what I loved about the book is you had about 20 companies in it. Um, yeah. Pick a, a couple and maybe tell a little bit of the story of those. Well, one of them is uh, Apple Tree Answers, and this, this story of the chapter, we call it the parable of the pothole. And I think it, it illustrates a universal issue that exists in the world of business today, and we're going to really have to focus on that coming out of this pandemic, especially. And it goes to what you were just talking about, putting people at the center. And the fact is that most of our companies have a kind of caste system within them. You've got a small group of people who are actually taken care of relatively well as the managers, executives, you know, the college educated, professional, full-time, salary, benefits, development plans, etc. But then in many companies, you've got the 85% of the employees who are actually doing the work, mm. in this case, answering the phones, and they are often hourly, mostly hourly paid. Many of them are part-time. There's no benefits. There's no development path, right? Yeah. There's, you know, high churn, 
100, 150% annual turnover, very, very low engagement, and life is difficult. And the fact is, they represent the majority of the workforce. In the U.S., about 100 million, two-thirds of the workforce is on hourly jobs. Yeah. And I would, about 80 million of those are paycheck to paycheck. Hmm. Right? They have no savings, they have no buffer. The life for them is a constant struggle. And any small uh, pothole that shows up in your, in, your, in your life can derail you completely. Yeah. They're yeah. living with that anxiety and then the reality of something happening. So, so that story is an illustration of a company that recognizes right, this reality that existed and initially started because of looking at the low engagement and high turnover. So, oh my God, we have to do something about this and then found out what their life is really like and then created a program to help them deal with these potholes in their lives. And after a period of initial reluctance for people to come forward, because as I say, people are stoic and people are heroic. You know, they just carry the burden and do the job, you know, amazingly. Yeah. And, and then, but then finally somebody broke through and said, I'm so sorry, I need help. My husband stopped paying alimony. I got evicted from the apartment. My kids and I have been living in a car now for a week. And I just need help. The mm. CEO saw that and he just felt a deep sense of shame. Yeah, and he had tears. So what kind of a company am I running? Where a mother who's homeless can't even tell us for a week, you know? So they helped her, of course, and then uh, the word got out, and you know, it's, you know, the floodgates opened, and so much other suffering came out. So all this suffering is silent, and when it's uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's available for us to see, uh, if we can we can bear witness to it. Yeah. Then from that, as the Buddhist principle goes, loving action naturally arises. Yeah. Right, so they had this these programs, and and over time, their annual turnover went from 118 percent down to about 16 percent hmm. for these workers, and they did other things to improve their their lives. So I think that's a universal thing that we have to now. The principle is everybody matters, everybody needs to win. Yeah, and if there's a group of people, our company is interacting with whether they're employees or customers who are not winning in the sense of who are not benefiting fully, uh, not thriving, then we have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, somebody's losing. We're not done, you know. So I think that story is probably the most universal story I think in the book. And coming out of this pandemic, we have to have a deep commitment to all the people. Yeah, yeah, not just some of the people in the company. I love that point. I mean, Michael Sandel's just written a book about meritocracy and work, and um, I uh, I just listened to him make presentation last week, and you know he really says a lot of what we've lost is the dignity of work. You know, we've become very focused on the elites and very focused. Uh, and in that process, we've almost denigrated um, yeah. the dignity of work. And I think that one of the things that comes out of this coronavirus issue that's a positive is the recognition of how much of the essential work and how interdependent we are on, you know, the nurses and the nurses' aides and the uh, delivery people and the people who are willing to go work in a grocery store or understanding the supply chain that reaches into another country. And then when things are bad in a place in a certain city in China, then we are going to have shortages of things here. And, and that interdependence, one, and then two, the dignity of work that we are so dependent on someone like a trash hauler to mm -hmm. come by on a regular basis when we're in lockdown, we still generate trash. Yeah. And, you know, these people go out and they find a way of, of getting to work and then working uh, when everybody else is uh, in this shutdown and lockdown mode. And I think that really is brought home to a lot of people. 
Um, yeah. You know, that, that these essential workers are, are really important. Um, yeah, it's about respect and dignity. And I say they are stoic and they're heroic. And that work is a lot harder than what you and I do. Mm. You know, and they're paid much less. And, and so, you know, we are respecting them and, and then treating them well. And of course, not just having, you know, having really moving towards this living wage idea. I mean, all of that, I think, is essential coming forward. I think yeah. we, are, we are now open to uh, fresh thinking and yeah. more sort of not incremental change, but, uh, but substantive change coming up. And I think that it's, uh, it's been reinforced. I think there's two things that are really reinforced that I've been following. One is uh, the Financial Times uh, created a list at the beginning of the pandemic of saints and sinners. And uh, when the Financial Times starts putting out a list and your company is on the sinners list, mm. you sort of go and you sort of say, well, like, how do I feel working for this company? Like, like we're, the, we're, the num- we're in the top 10 sinners Boy, am I proud, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let alone how I feel working about it because there's a lot of reasons why they're in the top 10. And I thought the other group, Just Capital, did a great job yeah. and is continuing to do a great job of, of tracking people's responses. Who's offering extended health insurance? Who's out there um, giving more time off and expending, extending their, their sickness benefits and uh, leave times? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's, that's really started to show that there's much more transparency about how you are treating your people, uh, particularly during this time. And, you know, people are going to remember, (laughs) how did my company show up? Did we go straight to layoffs or did we look at pay cuts across the board? Did we look at early retirement and hiring freezes as ways of avoiding um, moving to to layoffs? Um, Did we do all of that? Uh, first. Um, so I think ultimately people are going to be asking coming out of this, you know, uh, you know, how did my company show up? And they're going to remember. Well, thanks Raj, as always for your time. And thank you everybody for listening in again, any thoughts, comments, feedback, uh, go to the conscious That's the conscious And don't forget to hit the subscribe button on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Raj. Thank you, Timothy. See you soon.